and I want to invite the rest of you. Well, just before I invite you to turn somewhere, let me tell you here where we're, what we're doing this morning. Um, we're going to resume our study of the book of Acts January 17th. That's in two weeks, okay? So next week, Jared's going to be um, preaching, and I look forward to that. And I know you do as well, but this morning I want to preach on a text that has become very dear to me. Uh, it, it, I've actually preached, this will be the third time in the last 13 years I've preached on this text. And as I consider what this text teaches, I probably should have taught on it every single year I've been here. That's how important I think this is. If only for my own soul. That's how important. I need to be reminded of the truth that's in this text. And... and, and whether you think you need to be reminded of it or not, you're going to be reminded of it this morning, okay? That's where we're going to. We're going to go to a passage of Scripture that I think is perfect on the heels of our series um, on God's Word, going back into the book of Acts. It's a great bridge. It's a great way to start off a new year, all right? So, um, so I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to be reading verses 50 through 58. And the title of the message this morning is, Be Steadfast. Be Steadfast. So as you get there in your copy of God's Word, 1 Corinthians 15, 50-58, follow along as I read uh, these words. Paul writing to the church in Corinth, beginning in verse 50. Now I'll say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a ministry. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the, this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on the immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this passage this morning, this is an unbelievable, high and holy and difficult calling. Lord, in fact, it's impossible without you. Lord, we gather here this morning, and we need to hear from you. We need to be encouraged. Lord, as many are weak and weary and worn, the new year doesn't bring bright hope to many. In fact, it brings discouragement. And Lord, as we think about this calling that you not only gave to this church in Corinth, but you give to us today, Lord, I pray we'd hold fast to you with all that we are so that you might be glorified and honored in us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> William Carey was considered the father of the modern mission movement, and he wanted to translate the Bible into as many Indian languages as possible. That was his goal in life, so that more people could have God's word in front of them. 
and he established a large print shop where he, tra this translation work was done. Um, carried, he spent many, many hundreds and hundreds, really probably thousands and thousands of hours translating the Scripture. And then one night in this print shop where the Bibles were being printed, everything was burned to the ground. Yet Carey persevered and went forward and he accomplished his goal. The secret of Carey's success is found in his steadfast determination. He, he once wrote this, There are grave difficulties on every hand, and more are looming ahead. Therefore, we must go forward. We must go forward. And yes, there are grave difficulties surrounding us. The death of loved ones. We just got to honor and celebrate the life of Dave Rich this week as the Lord took him home. Uh, to be with him, and that hurts. Uh, I know Mary is hurting, and Terry is hurting, their family is hurting, and it's a difficulty that surrounds us. Many of us are surrounded by difficulties in our home for whatever reason, all kinds of difficulties in our home and the relationships that go on in our home. Maybe because of sin, maybe not, maybe just because of life. Many of us are also surrounded by difficulties in the workplace, Maybe because just the, the, the task at hand. Maybe because of a shutdown and you're, you're taken away from your family for weeks on end and hours on end because of shutdowns and startups and all that goes on in the plants. Whatever it is, there are difficulties that are going on in our life. And there, listen to this. There are many that are looming ahead. There's more coming. I'm sorry to be the bearer of good news this morning. There are more coming. It doesn't end with what we're in right now or what we've experienced. Yet in the midst of these difficulties, we are called to fulfill the mission of the church, which is to make the disciples. In the midst of all that going on, all that pain, all that struggle, all that difficulty, we're called to fulfill the mission of the church. Therefore, we must go forward. Maybe the thought of another year fulfilling this calling of making disciples is just too much for you. It's just too much in the midst of the difficulties that you're experiencing. And the thought that there's more ahead. Brian, I can't even think about that. That's just too much for me to think about. I understand. I've been there. And guess what? I'll be there again. And if you're not there right now, you will be there. When you think about this calling to make disciples of the world. What a calling. And in the midst of our difficulties and knowing there's more ahead, sometimes we're just like, Lord, it's just too much. It's too much. And yet he lovingly calls us to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil in the Lord is not in vain. This is what we're called to do by God's grace. And guess what? We can do it. We can do it. So I want you to join me as we look at this passage of Scripture this morning. We're not going to break down verses 50 through 57 a whole lot. We're going to kind of overview those and then spend a lot of our time, most of our time, just in verse 58. Um, but in these verses, we're going to discover true truths um, uh, about being steadfast in the work of the Lord. And I want you, before we do that, let me draw your attention to the very first word in verse 58. It's the word what? Therefore. And you always got to ask the question when you see a therefore. What's the question? What's it, what's it there for? 
Ask that question every time. You've been around here enough to know that. You've probably heard that many times from other people. But therefore, it introduces this imperative or command in our passage this morning to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. That's what introduces that. So this therefore is obviously pointing to the truth that precedes it. And based on this truth, he calls these believers in the church at Corinth to be steadfast. Therefore, based upon what I've just said. So the, the first key truth in our passage this morning is the foundation to be steadfast, laying the foundation to carry out this command. So what is this foundation that Paul calls these believers and us to be steadfast in or on? Um, he points back really in verses 1 through 49 or really verses 1 through 57, he's pointing back to that, but verses 1 through 49, Paul deals with things like evidences for the resurrection. Now, the whole chapter is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he deals with a lot of evidences. Let me point to this. This shows that the resurrection was true, and he goes through this whole list. He also talks about the results of the resurrection, and, and he gives a description of resurrected bodies. It's an amazing passage of Scripture all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it has to do with us. Then in verses 50 through 57, which we just read, Paul shows that based on Christ's resurrection, even though our bodies will decay, all right, they're perishable, all right, we will be raised with new imperishable bodies. I am for that. I'm telling you, I'm all for that. Uh, I, I, this, because, and why can we, we, we look forward to that? Why will we be raised with new imperishable bodies? Because Jesus won the victory over sin and swallowed up, leaving it powerless over us. Jesus, and I'm not trying to be funny here, but I want you to think about this because there's a word here that we use a ton. In, in, in fact, billions of dollars, billions, and Joshua told me a stat, stat this week about this particular company that makes billions of dollars a year based upon a word here, victory. And the word in Greek for victory is Nike. In a sense, Jesus put his Nikes on and he crushed the serpent's head, right? We talked about that in Genesis 3.15. says that's what he'll do. He will crush the serpent's head. He will have victory over the serpent. And that's what he did. And because of that victory, that Nike that he overcame, we are promised imperishable bodies, and we will be raised and given these imperishable bodies and reign with him forever. Amazing. So the resurrection with the current and future effects it has on us is the foundation on which Paul bases this command to be steadfast. Therefore, he says, and, and, and this great, and, and great truth, this truth about the resurrection, great truth in Scripture always leads to action. Always leads to action. I was watching something, maybe we'll play it when we get back into um, Acts, but... I was watching something on uh, um, Francis Chan. It was like a two-minute thing. I don't know if you're all familiar with Francis Chan. I really enjoy his teachings. I really enjoy some of the things he's written and those kind of things. Very challenging. My kind of guy just tells you how it is. And he was talking about how often we'll, we'll memorize verses, and we should. The Scripture calls us to memorize, to meditate on Scripture and to write it on our heart. So he's not saying don't do that. He's saying, but we sit around and we, we, we talk about the Great Commission. We've got to remember, go there for all, and, and baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We, we memorize these verses. But the Scripture doesn't ever say, okay, just sit around and talk about it and do nothing about it. It should always lead to action. 
And often we just talk about it and we don't act upon it. And in, in, in the same way, this great truth about the resurrection and that we are given not only resurrect, we will one day be given resurrection bodies, we're also given the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in us today based upon that truth, that foundation. He says, do something. There's a command. The objective truths of Scripture are always followed by imperatives, and they always go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. You can't go do something without the truth based to base upon, and you should always do something based upon the truth that you know. Well, let's look at the second key. That's the first key, the foundation to be steadfast. The second key here in this passage, the truth about being steadfast, is the exhortation to be steadfast. This truth answers the question, what difference should the truth of the resurrection make in our life? So what? Big deal. We always got to ask that question. And let's begin by noticing the recipients here of the exhortation. Look with me in verse 58 and how Paul refers to the people he's exhorting to action here. He calls them my beloved brethren or dear brothers, and it includes, it includes brothers and sisters, all right? So ladies, you're not off the hook this morning, all right? But he says, my dear brothers or beloved brethren, it says something about the family relationship we have as part of the body of Christ, the, the family of God, and you see these kind of words all over the New Testament. Family words, brother, sister, Sometimes father is not going to talk about a biological father. He's talking about an older person that you respect, mothers. He calls us into relationship with himself, and in so doing, he brings us into relationship with other people who are part of that body, who are part of that family. So how does someone become a part of the family? That's important to know how do you become part of the family of God. If he stresses brothers, how do you become brothers and sisters? Well, I love, and we're going to get to this passage in Acts. Um, it's one of my favorite passages in Acts, and I use it a lot. But in, in Acts 16, 14 through 15, Paul um, meets this woman named Lydia. And here it says in verse 14, A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. First notice that the Lord opened her heart. I love that. That's the best description you can possibly give how someone becomes part of the family of God. The Lord opens our hearts. He opens our hearts. Because the reality is, the scripture teaches, if he doesn't open them, they're closed. They're rock solid closed. We want nothing to do with the family of God. We want nothing to do with Jesus until he opens our hearts, and that's what he did. And she, then she believed the gospel, understood it, that it, 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 in a sense, and to, because of that, she was baptized. And just like a wedding ring shows that you understand if you're making a commitment, all right, it doesn't make you married, but it, it shows you understand the commitment. She puts on, in a sense, the wedding ring, and she's baptized. And many other people in her household are baptized as well. So let me ask this question. Has the Lord opened your heart? Are you part of the family of God, of all those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord? Have you done that? Put aside your own righteousness, as we saw in Matthew 5, because it'll never meet God's standard of perfection. If you put that aside and trust it in Jesus' perfect work for you through his life, his death, his burial, and resurrection. And the only way you'll do this is open your heart. But your job is not to open up your heart. 
He does that. And when he opens your heart, you respond by trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray you've done that. And then if you have, you're part of the family of God. This is how we become brothers and sisters. We don't choose our brothers and sisters. They're given to us. Oh, no, you're kidding. Um, I'm not much of a, I don't know, Facebook. It's too complicated. That's too complicated. Sometimes I'll browse through Grace Bible Church Facebook page and everybody who's friends and kind of see that kind of thing. But I I do Twitter and Instagram thing, right? So over Thanksgiving, the first time that I can remember in a long time, my, 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 my brother, I had a younger brother and an older brother. We were all together in our families, except for one, my, my older brother's oldest son is in, in the service in the Air Force in England. He wasn't there, but everybody else was there together. And I have a picture, maybe some of you saw it, of me, my, my brothers and I together. See, I'm the shortest one, all right? And I'm standing in the middle of them. And, uh, but God gave me those brothers, and sometimes we didn't get along. And sometimes we didn't like each other, but we were always taught in the McKenzie family that you love each other, and you got each other's backs no matter what. And that, that, that resonated with me. We didn't always agree, but we always were for each other. We're still always for each other. And that's the way it is with the family of God. We didn't choose who's going to be a part of the family of God. That's not our doing. We have nothing to do with that. That's God's deal. But he calls us together as a family. And he calls us to love each other, even sometimes when we don't like each other. That's what a family does, isn't it? Yeah. There's some of us who've been here for almost 13 years, or about 13 years. And there's been times that maybe we hadn't liked each other as much, but we've loved each other, and we've persevered and kept loving each other, right? And those who have come on board after that, part of the family here at Grace Bible Church, we've loved each other. And we've worked through some of those differences about not liking each other, and really come to realize there are more preferences than there are principles. And we have to set them aside. You know, I'm going to love you. I'm going to commit to love you. And you have this idea. He calls them my beloved brethren. He exhorts them by calling beloved brothers and sisters. These people are loved by Paul and are dear to him. And this is amazing when you consider Paul, what Paul has to address concerning his brothers and sisters earlier in this letter. You may be thinking, I mean, there's some people in here it's really hard to like. Well, wait till you hear some of the things he has to address to people he calls beloved, I love you, brothers and sisters. Listen, in chapter 5, there's immorality in the church. Chapter 6, there's lawsuits against each other. They're suing each other right and left. Chapter 7, their understanding of marriage is all messed up. Chapter 11, they're mistreating the poor. Chapters 12 through 14, they're abusing all the spiritual gifts. And many people were questioning Paul's call as apostle, were beginning to listen to false teachers. Yet Paul, at the end of chapter 15, still refers to these people as my beloved brethren. Paul shows us that true Christians love not based, they don't love based on their emotions, but rather on their wills. That's why when I do weddings, and I've never seen another, anybody do anything different, we don't ask how the husband and wife feel. We ask this, will you? Will you? Because there'll be plenty of times you won't feel like it. I promise you. Warren and Emma, you are new at this, all right? A couple few weeks, and, 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 but sometimes you're not going to feel like it. But your daddy, Emma, didn't ask you, did you feel like it? He said, will you? Will you? Will you? In spite of all the Corinthians' problems, Paul realized that these people were brothers and sisters in Christ, and he loved them. They needed a loving yet firm 
hand of instruction. They were under great temptation and persecution and needed a loving exhortation to be steadfast. The recipients of exhortation were their brothers and sisters at the church at Corinth. That in spite of their faults and immaturity, Paul loved them and was committed to exhorting them to glorify God. And the recipients of this exhortation are not only them, it's us too, right? We can't get off. The Lord calls, has put us, the people of GBC, together and calls us to love each other through the good and bad. He wants us to point each other to our loving Father in all things. Many of you here this morning are struggling with temptation and trials and persecution. I know that. Be encouraged. The Lord through Paul is lovingly yet firmly exhorting you to hang in there and don't give up. Others are struggling with discouragement or disappointment or disillusionment. Be encouraged. The Lord is also lovingly exhorting you and calling you to stay the course. Don't give up. Still others are struggling with complacency or apathy. They need to be challenged. They need to be motivated. Know this exhortation is for you as well. And others are caught up in pursuit of pleasures, pursuit of power, pursuit of possessions. And the Lord through Paul is calling you to be steadfast. Don't quit. In some way, he, we are all the recipients. We all need to hear this exhortation and know that this exhortation comes from God with great love, but also with great urgency and an expectation and the family of God is here to lovingly obey exhorta- this exhortation to be steadfast. Listen, together. We, we do it together. I've said this many times over the last 13 years. You probably heard it somewhere else because I stole it from somebody else. But there's no Lone Rangers in Christianity. Even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. We all know that. You don't do it alone. We do it together. And not only do the recipients of the exhortation, or not, not only do we see the ex- recipients here, to be steadfast. We also see the description of the exhortation. Look again at the words in verse 58. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Notice the word to be steadfast, or your translation may say stand firm. It's an imperative, meaning it's a command, and it points to the entire verse. This, this verb here is the main verb. You know, this is English class again. No, but I tell you, if you want to know the key to understanding scripture, look for the verbs. Look for the verbs, and here's the main verb. It literally means to be seated or to be settled firmly. Put your hand to the plow and do not remove it until the work is done. Now look at the word immovable. It's similar in meaning to steadfast, but even more intense, it means not capable of being moved from its place. It's firm. It's impossible to be moved. It's not going anywhere. These words speak of an internal conviction based upon the objective truth of the resurrection. No matter what the world says, we're not to back away from the gospel and the truth of the resurrection because it's settled settled in here. It's done in here. We know it to be true. And because of that, not just here, but here, we'll be steadfast, immovable. We'll never back down from the gospel, and part of the gospel is the resurrection. We'll never back down from that. We'll never back down from what God has called us to do. We'll be steadfast. We'll be immovable. Well, not only is this exhortation an imperative, and you all have heard this many times, it's also a present imperative. And a present imperative means we only do it one time, right? We obey the command one time. Is that what it means? 
No, a present imperative means we continue to do it. We never stop doing it. We keep being steadfast and movable. We keep being steadfast and movable. We keep being steadfast and movable every single day. In fact, the very next word in the English, immovable, says always. The, the word steadfast is, in a pre, is a present imperative. It's already to do it always. And he says it again, always be steadfast, always. Always, always, always be steadfast. This strengthens the fact that this exhortation is to be steadfast and movable. It's a constant in our life. What is it then we're to be steadfast, or what is it that we would be steadfast in always? Well, verse 58 tells us we're to be steadfast and movable always, listen, in the work of the Lord. What is the work of the Lord? Now, if we, we, we made it, did a survey, everybody lists the top 10 things of the work of the Lord. We may get a lot of different things. Some of them may actually be the work of the Lord, and some of them may not be the work of the Lord. I don't know. But we can get a lot of different answers to what the work of the Lord is. But I think Paul gives a general overarching principle and foundation of the work of the Lord when he writes earlier in the same, the same epistle, the same letter, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Our purpose in life is to glorify God. That is the work of the Lord, to glorify, the, glorify God. Spreading the gospel message that Paul taught to the Corinthians was the work of the Lord. Working for unity in the body was the work of the Lord. Abstaining from immorality was the work of the Lord. Caring for the poor is the work of the Lord. Using the spiritual gifts to build up the body was the work of the Lord. All of it, the work of the Lord. And what you do at your workplace tomorrow is also the work of the Lord. What you do at school tomorrow is the work of the Lord. What you do in your home is the work of the Lord. It's all the work of the Lord. So my question is, are you prepared to be steadfast and movable when it comes to integrity? When everyone else around you in the business world is lying and cheating to make an extra buck, will you be steadfast and immovable? Students, are you how you relate with your peers is also a work of the Lord. Are you prepared to be steadfast and movable when it comes to sexual purity? Are you prepared to be steadfast and movable when it comes to language that builds up instead of sarcasm that tears down? Are we willing to be steadfast and movable, always abounding the work of the Lord, even when we have to stand alone? Noah was. We learn in the New Testament, Noah was a preacher of repentance for 120 years. 120 years as the ark is being built. 120 years. And when he gets on that ark, it's just him and his family who gets on the ark. No one else gets on the ark. Oh, yeah, the animals. But people don't get on the ark. He and his family get on the ark. Was he a failure? No, because he was steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. He wasn't a failure. And we do all this work of the Lord because of the truth and the, of and in the power of the resurrection that Paul has been speaking of here. So the description of, the exhorta- of this exhortation is that it is a command to constantly and firmly, without wavering, glorify God in all that you do. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Have I said that enough this morning? It's coming more. We're going to get more of it, all right? You probably had this memorized by the end of the day, too, hopefully. 
Well, let's now look at the next aspect of this exhortation to be steadfast, the extent of the exhortation. Look with me at the word abounding in the phrase, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Some translations say, give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. It means to exceed the requirements or overflowing. The same word is used in Ephesians 1, 7 through 8 when, when speaking about the grace that God has poured out in salvation. Look here at Ephesians 1, 7 through 8. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. The word lavished here in, in, in Ephesians is the same word for abounding in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, 58. The Lord went over and above in his grace toward us. So the extent of our call to be constantly be steadfast and movable to work of the Lord is also to be abounding, going beyond what's required, giving fully of yourself. The Lord was and is abounding in his grace toward us. How can we be anything less than abounding when it comes to the work of the Lord? How can we? The picture here is to fill our lives, our years, our weeks, our days, our hours, our minutes with things that count for and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so sad to see Christians who just want to get by. They, they, they just want to get, it's one of those questions, you know, well, what do I need, what, what, what's required of me? And that's all they want to know, just what's the bottom line? I don't, why do we ask those kind of questions? And the reality is we've all asked those kind of questions, haven't we? What's the bottom, just give me the bottom line. We want, what was the, just to get by. Instead, God, through Paul, exhorts us to pray hard, to dream hard, and then to abound in, fill our lives up with things that count for eternity and the building up of his kingdom. Uh, C.T. Studd had it right when he, he wrote, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We sometimes hear about burnout, and I've said this each time I've, I've preached to this past, is we, we often hear about burnout, and yet I don't see a lot of burnout. I don't see burnout in the Christian life. I've never seen it, personally. And I, that's not what I fear the most. I fear, and let me say this about my own life, I fear a lot more about rust out. Things that don't move and just sit there and they acquire water on them, right? What happens? They rust out. They get rust. They get moisture, and there's nothing moving. There's never ever done with the rust. With what could bring, bring about the rust? Burning out is not even on the horizon for me. It's not. How about you? Are you really burning out? In the work of the Lord? That's the question. Are we burning out in the work of the Lord? I've heard about people that have done that. And maybe I've met one or two. But it's not me. Are we consumed with the concern of those who don't know Jesus as our Lord and Savior? Let me tell you this. Heaven is abounding with joy and hell is abounding with pain. I'm not consumed enough for the glory of God in all things. And don't get me wrong, I'm concerned about all those things. But I'm not consumed about all those things. And I want to be consumed. What does it look like when someone is abounding in the work of the Lord? What does that look like? And you may know someone. 
that it looks like they're abounding in the work of the Lord. Uh, I can't think of a better example right now that comes to my head than Philippians chapter 2, which is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. I'll say that about every passage, I guess. But it's about Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was sent by the church of Philippi uh, to uh, Paul to bring a gift. And on his way there, I guess, he gets really sick. And it says in verse 27, he was sick to the point of death. And verse 30 says that he came close to death to the work of Christ, risking his life. Listen to that again. He came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life. You see, that's what it looks like to be abounding in the work of the Lord. That's what it looks like to get close to burnout. But the thing is, God promises we'll never burn out when we trust in him. We're relying on his grace in our life. We won't burn out. There's no fear to burn out when we do that. If we're trusting in ourselves, maybe it'll happen. You see, Epaphroditus held nothing back. He was consumed with the gospel. Again, I don't know about you, but I know that I need to rely much more on God's grace so I can abound in his work. People of grace, are you being steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord? Does this statement characterize your life? If not, why not? Are you abounding or are we just getting by? Let's be people that rely on the strength of the Lord in us to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Just imagine, just imagine, if we would rely on the strength of God in us, all of us here as a family would rely on the strength of the Lord in us to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. What would that look like? Can you imagine? I want want us to dream about that. And not just dream about it, not just talk about it. Then by God's grace, go out and be abounding in the work of the Lord. That's what we're called to. That's what Paul called the church of Corinth to, and he calls us the same. So let's now look at the final aspect of this exhortation to be steadfast, the motivation in the exhortation. What motivates us to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord? Look at the last phrase in verse 58 with me. Knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Now, I understand sometimes my accent blows up toil, okay, toll, or whatever it is. Knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's hard work, painful work sometimes. That's why he uses the word toil, labor, it points to the extent to which we are to be steadfast for the glory of God. How can we know that our toil or labor in the Lord is not in vain? This goes back to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus, which secures our resurrection and eternity in the Lord. Because of the resurrection, no amount of work done in the name of the Lord by the grace of God in us is in vain. You can't work hard enough. You couldn't spend the rest of your days working 100% a hundred percent in the Lord, and any of it be in vain. In the Lord. It will never be in vain because of the resurrection. That's the hope. It matters. All of it matters. Every single ounce of our work in the Lord matters. Not just some of it. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about this phrase when he says, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, therefore what we do 
is not done for a dead Christ. We're not fighting for a dead man's cause. We're not contending for a weak dynasty or a name to conjure up. We have a living captain, a reigning king, one who is able both to occupy the throne and to lead on our host to battle. Oh, by the Christ in glory, I beseech you, brethren, be ye steadfast. That's the kind of God. Is that hope? You bet. Does that give motivation to always abound in the work of the Lord? You bet it does. We must know that we do, what we do for the glory of God is never in vain. It's as if Paul is saying to these believers, when you are steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, you're not crazy. You're not crazy. You're not weird. When you're consumed with the gospel in every aspect of life, you're not crazy. It's not in vain. When you're giving generously, as Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians, you're not crazy. It's not in vain. When you serve sacrificially, it's not in vain. When we do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than ourselves, it's not in vain. When we admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone, it's not in vain. You're not crazy. When you lose your job or friend because of the gospel, you're not crazy. It's not in vain. You see, he sees our toil or our labor done in his strength for his glory. He sees it. Believe me. It really doesn't matter if anyone else sees it. He sees it. What it says in Revelation twenty-two, twelve: Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he's done. He sees it. He does care. And he will, and I don't understand how this works out. He will reward us somehow. But here's what I'm looking forward to. The greatest reward is him and himself. Just Jesus. That's all we need. What other reward he might give looks like? We get Jesus fully. He comes quickly. And we render every man according to what he has done. Well, what will be our response to this this morning? I hope we don't just walk out here talking about it. Man, let's be steadfast, pastor. Praise God. Woo! Always abound in the work of the Lord. Woo, that's great. Woo, let's go fired up. I saw some teams yesterday playing football. They just listened to their coach, and they didn't do anything about it at all. A bunch of them. They just, that's good. Where'd he go, coach? Woo! And they ran out of the tunnel, and nothing happened. And maybe that was one of your teams. I don't know. But that's sometimes what we do, right? We're just like that team that runs out of the tunnel. Woo! We're all fired up. Yeah! And we get out there, and nothing happens. And, nothing, and I'm talking about myself, too. We run out all excited, and yet nothing happens. When considering this command to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord, D.A. Carson writes some, uh, that I, some words I found this week that hit home. And I'll just share them because they hit home to me, but maybe they will to you. People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. We will not drift toward the Lord's exhortation to be steadfast. It will not happen accidentally. It takes a focused effort and commitment to fulfill this command. 
And in our own strength, let me get you to give this. It's impossible. This is an impossible exhortation to us. You can't do it, and I can't do it, and no one you've ever met can do it. No one. The Apostle Paul couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. However, he tells us in this same chapter how we can do it. 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God I am what I am. His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. This is Paul speaking. And Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. He's made right with God. He's forgiven. He's a saint, as he calls other believers. He's made holy in Christ. He has the righteousness of Christ that dwells in him by the grace of God. He did nothing to get that. But not only that, but he labored more than them all. He worked, he labored, he toiled more than all. But not, he goes, not, not me, not me, not my strength, but the grace of God in me. See, grace is not just undeserved favor, but it's the desire and power to do God's will. It's the desire and power to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil is not in vain in the Lord. It's his power in us. It's his grace. Will we embrace God's empowering grace and obey this command, my beloved brethren and sisters, to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil, our toil is not in vain in the Lord. Well, here we see that steadfastness is our response to the resurrection. Not only is it the resurrection our motivation, but it's the very power to obey God's amazing exhortation to us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for this passage, Lord, that has become to mean so much to me. Lord, I am not even close. But by your grace in me, Lord, I want to get closer this year. I want to be more steadfast and movable. I want to be more about abounding in your work. Lord, knowing that sometimes when it seems like nothing's going on, nothing's happening, doesn't seem like there's any fruit in ministry because of the resurrection, it's not in vain. I'm not crazy. Lord, I pray you'd encourage our people here at Grace. No matter the difficulty that they're in or the difficulty to come, no matter the discouragement that might be in their life now, you let them know that because of the resurrection, the work in you is not in vain. You're using it. You promised to do so. So Lord, help us here at Grace to be a family that loves you, and loves each other and commits by your grace to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in your work, knowing that our hard labor is not in vain because of you. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the resurrected Christ. Amen. Stand as we continue to worship together this morning.